Hey everyone, this is Cody, and you're listening to the Tent Talks podcast. In this episode, I speak with Walter Veit about the science and philosophy of consciousness. Walter is an interdisciplinary scientist and philosopher who's currently working on his PhD thesis at the University of Sydney. One of the things that I greatly admire about Walter is just how incredibly diverse his research output is. He's published on a wide range of different topics, including the topic of animal consciousness and animal welfare, cognitive and genetic enhancement, nihilism, and a range of other different topics in the fields of evolutionary biology, applied ethics, and the philosophy of science. Here I speak with Walter about his PhD dissertation, which explores the evolutionary origins of consciousness and how different dimensions of consciousness are distributed throughout the animal kingdom. Some of the things that come up in the conversation include the hard problem of consciousness, different metaphysical approaches to consciousness, the question of whether consciousness has an adaptive function or whether it's just an evolutionary byproduct. And then we also discuss different aspects of consciousness, like self-awareness, sensory experience, evaluative experience, and the unity and temporality of experience. If you want to learn more about Walter's work, I'm going to embed a link to his website in the show notes. And I want to thank Walter for coming onto the podcast to talk with me. Personally, I got a lot out of this discussion. So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. I thought we could start by talking about the hard problem of consciousness. I'm really interested to get your perspective on that. So maybe I'll just lay out what the hard problem is, and then you can offer your reaction. So when I'm talking about consciousness here, I'm talking about phenomenal consciousness, where an entity is phenomenally conscious. If there's something it's like to be the entity from the inside, the entity has some sort of subjective perspective or point of view on the world. That's what I mean by consciousness. Obviously, this is an ambiguous term that's used in a multitude of different ways by different scholars. And this hard problem of consciousness, I believe, derives from David Chalmers, and he distinguishes it from the so-called easy problems of consciousness, right? Where easy problems of consciousness are all those problems that denote different kinds of behavior and functioning in the brain, right? So explaining how we're able to discriminate sensory stimuli in the environment, explaining how we can verbally express the contents of our internal states, how we're able to integrate information from different inputs. All of these are easy problems because solving them ultimately is just a matter of identifying objective processes that occur in the brain. The hard problem of consciousness is different, according to Chalmers, because it's not a matter of just identifying different neural mechanisms in the brain. And it can be posed as the following question, I think, right? Why is there something it's like from the inside to be a brain? Why is the brain associated with subjective experience? And Chalmers says that the hard problem is hard because it doesn't seem like the standard procedures and tools of a neuroscience could make any headway on the hard problem, right? Even with a completed neuroscience, even if we isolated the neural correlates of consciousness, it would still seem utterly miraculous as to why all of these neural processes don't just take place in the dark in the absence of any subjective experience, right? So 
I mean, thus far, we, we've established different correlations between conscious states and brain processes, but nothing that has the character of an explanation, right? Explaining how brain processes give rise to consciousness. So this hard problem has obviously, you know, dominated many different discussions in the philosophy of mind over the past couple of decades. There are some philosophers who are willing to reject physicalism about consciousness in light of this hard problem. Other philosophers will deny that there's a hard problem at all. Maybe there's just a multitude of easy problems. So in your chapter that I read, I thought you had an extremely interesting take on the hard problem. You were saying that maybe the idea that there's a hard problem is just the result of mistakenly thinking that consciousness is some binary thing. Um, whereas it's not actually a binary thing. Could you just expand upon that? That's right. Um, my point in my thesis at large is that I want to do what the behaviorists did for behavior, that is to remove man from the center of reference. And in a lot of what goes on in philosophy of mind and consciousness study, humans have for a long time been the center of reference. Um, when the behaviorists and the 1920s started sort of to revolutionize psychology and get rid of consciousness. And they argued that consciousness science back then, which kind of was psychology, was a bit hopeless because whenever they did experiments on animal behavior, they always had to justify their work by referring to human consciousness. And they didn't see how they could study animal consciousness, hence they rejected it based on Darwinian continuity. And I think we have a similar problem now that we look at human consciousness, which is incredibly complex, enriched, perhaps transformed in various ways. And we think that consciousness is all of this at once, and it has to come into nature almost like this magical fairy dust added <laughs> to the brain, to the cognitive processes. And I think that's a bit of a mistake. So I'm taking a much more Darwinian perspective on consciousness. That is, I want to think about it in terms of a gradualist, um, from a gradualist point of view. And if you do that, then that stands in contrast with the heart problem in various ways, because in a way it asserts that there must be something that's neither conscious nor non-conscious. There must be states in between that are better characterized as something like Dennett might call it hemi-demi-semi-consciousness, um, sort of, some sort of quasi-experiencing going on that's neither something we want to characterize as real experience, but neither is it non-experience. Um, and that's hard to get your head around. If you look at our own consciousness, states seem to either be experienced or not experienced. Now, some states are perhaps suggestive that something else might be going on if you think of just waking up, your conscious not, consciousness, uh, your consciousness not being at like 100%. Um, this might be something like this quasi-experience that I speak of, but I think of it as much more ancient in an evolutionary sense. And I want to um, warn people 
in the field that perhaps we're too committed to a sort of transformation uh, to a to a latecomer view where consciousness must come really late when there's a lot of um, cognitive complexity already in place. And I think this kind of gives rise to Chalmers' heart problem. If you think you can have organisms with an incredibly high degree of cognitive complexity, and then suddenly at some point here, consciousness comes in addition, then yes, this seems to be suggestive of something like a heart problem, a big explanatory gap. Mm. So that's my reasoning here. Yeah, so when I think about, I kind of have trouble wrapping my head around this conception of quasi-consciousness. So I definitely agree that there are levels to consciousness. There are different degrees of consciousness. There are different kinds of consciousness, which we'll talk about, I think. Visual consciousness, evaluative consciousness, self-consciousness, emotional consciousness, right? So it certainly doesn't seem to be a binary phenomenon in that sense, but it does seem to be, at least to me, a binary phenomenon in another sense like to go back to the light switch metaphor um to me it seems as if consciousness might be a light switch in the sense that either you have a subjective point of view or you don't and then once the light is on so the question of whether the light is on or not is a binary question and then once the light is on the light can become dimmer or it can become brighter. And from there you get the different degrees of consciousness. So I guess it seems to me that all these different kinds of conscious experiences, they share the feature of subjectivity. And that feature of subjectivity, that kind of point of viewness, strikes me as a binary phenomenon. I don't see how you could have different degrees of subjectivity, if that makes sense. So I think I think your perspective here is what most people seem to endorse, right? Um, people like Dennett have emphasized um, the gradualness of experience and in response people have um, argued look we can have lights that are dimmer um, but that doesn't mean that this, the light is either on or off now in a way I'm rejecting the metaphor entirely I think maybe look if you use this metaphor then you get something like binary-ness Perhaps that's not the right metaphor to think about consciousness, right? Just because we have this metaphor doesn't mean it's the right one. Um, I think it's compelling, and it has convinced even many philosophers of biology, such as Jonathan Birch, who endorse a gradualist picture in a way. So in my thesis, I distinguish between three kinds of gradualisms that you could endorse. One is a very weak gradualism in which you think consciousness is something that appears quite late in nature. Uh, humans have it, perhaps um, the great apes and mm, perhaps other mammals, perhaps even birds, but it is something that comes quite late. And then you might have different degrees of richness there. And I guess we'll talk about different dimensions of consciousness later. Jonathan Birch endorses more something like a moderate gradualism in which he thinks no consciousness could be really ancient going back to perhaps the cambrian explosion um but the lights do go on at one point there is something like a hard line in nature that at some point is crossed and so the way he thinks about this evolutionary transition in a sense is there's a vast range of a gray area and we are bound to find a gray area now as well. But it doesn't mean that organisms, in fact, are on one side or the other. It's just that it's really hard to determine. And now, me, 
Peter Godfrey Smith, Daniel Dennett, we endorse a stronger Darwinian view. Um, uh, Peter calls it a true gradualism at one point, um, which endorses something much stronger. Here you think of the gray area as being more or less experiential. You have more or less subjectivity. So granted, if you think of consciousness, it's very hard to think in a, in a non-binary way. Perhaps subjectivity is a bit different. You might think of subjectivity as something like a trait that can evolve, which not necessarily has to be conscious. And you might think of consciousness as just to subjectivity becoming increasingly enriched, at which point organisms will come to think of their own sort of internal goings on as having a perspective and which need some evolutionary theorizing about why that would happen in order to make sense of it. But I think if you take evolutionary biology really serious, um, then something like a binary picture starts to look like a much harder thing to explain. So we shouldn't just from the armchair assume that there must be a binary explanation in which light suddenly go on, such as in a phase transition, perhaps. And I think you can see this if you think about how people talk about it. Often they talk about it like uh, Chalmers does, right? You have different degrees of diversity and cognitive complexity, and all of this comes in degrees. There's no sudden jumps here. But then suddenly lights are supposed to come on. And if you endorse this, dualism is almost impossible to avoid. Now you're talking of consciousness suddenly like a light, something that is caused by the brain. Whereas if you think about it in, in a materialist, biological way, it should be rather something like the materialist organization is such and such. Um, makes sense of itself, perhaps with electromagnetic waves, and that's all very speculative at the moment. But the point is that you should think of it in a materialist way, in a way we've built in dualist assumptions into our thinking of consciousness. And if you want to explain that, then I can see why people like Dennett and Keith Frankish talk about illusionism. That Consciousness is an illusion. I don't think that's right. Um, the term, I think, is misleading. But there's something deeply right about the goal to undermine um, the idea that it must be this magical fairy dust that comes on top. Something that cannot be explained, possibly in a biological way. Right? So it's this idea that we can, from the armchair, decide a priori that there is no gradualist story to be told. If you want to treat consciousness like any other complex evolved biological phenomena, you're going to be bound to find a variety of gradations and varieties. Right. Yeah, so just to put all my cards on the table here, I'm very partial to panpsychism. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on <laughs> panpsychism. I come to panpsychism in the same manner that a lot of contemporary philosophers do, I think, to me when I was first reading about it. So panpsychism is the idea that consciousness pervades 
the fundamental level of reality. And I'm particularly drawn to what's called a resilient monist conception of panpsychism, according to which consciousness actually constitutes the intrinsic nature of the physical universe. And I was drawn to it because it seems as if panpsychism arguably uh, retains the strengths of physicalism and dualism while avoiding their weaknesses, right? So physicalism is confronted with this hard problem of consciousness. Dualism is notoriously confronted with this problem of causation, right? Dualism says that consciousness somehow exists over and above the physical realm. Truths about consciousness can't be grounded in fundamental truths of a completed physics, right? That's dualism. And there's a problem of causation there because it seems like the mental has the ability to impugn causal effects on the world, but the cause the universe is causally closed. So in order to make sense of causation on a dualist framework, it seems like you're going to have to either endorse some kind of overdetermination or endorse some kind of epiphenomenalism or reject the causal closure of the physical universe. So by endorsing that resilient monist panpsychist vision of consciousness, it seems like you can respect the hard problem of consciousness and the idea that consciousness seems irreducible to physical properties as we currently understand them, but you can also kind of infuse consciousness into the nexus of the physical universe such that you can make sense of causation. That would be the ideal, at least. So I'm wondering... Yeah, so I guess my question there is, is dualism the only alternative or would a panpsychist route make sense? I pers personally have never truly understood the illusionism idea of physicalism, the idea that consciousness is an illusion. That's probably just because I haven't read enough Keith Frankish, but it seems to me that consciousness is the one thing in the universe that can't be an illusion because it's the one thing that's immune to philosophical skepticism, right? I could be in the matrix right now. The external world could not really exist. I can think I'm doing a podcast with you and not be doing a podcast with you, but I can't think I'm thinking and not be thinking, right? The, 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 it seems like that's the one thing that you can't doubt, the reality of consciousness. So, no, I think you're right there. Um, there's certainly something it feels like to be thinking and to deny it seems to be a bit sketchy. Um, I think Peter Godfrey Smith is right here that People like Dennett and Keith Rankish have perhaps given too little credit to the notion of qualia, which now has a really bad reputation perhaps in the philosophy of mind. But there is something here that we ought to naturalize and it can't just be dismissed. I think what goes on in much of Dennett's work is actually something um, that you have to think about a bit more in a historical context where the philosophy of mind used to distinguish between consciousness and qualia. And nowadays, especially thanks to David Chalmers and Thomas Nagel, these two problems are largely seen as identical. But then it is often very much motivated by human consciousness, which he thinks of perhaps a very rich way of thinking about the world and when you read his writing, this is really what he is engaged in, where, where he really sees a bit of a division in nature between us and other animals, because we do think in a much more richer way about the world. I'm not sure this should be called consciousness. Perhaps it's just a way of symbolizing the world that animals are not engaged in. So how should we naturalize qualia? I think... Whereas Dennett, Keith Frankish go too far 
in denying the reality of qualia altogether. I think that many philosophers of mind make the notion of qualia almost too rich, almost impenetrable, right? There could be some things right about it. There's something it feels like. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's private uh, entirely and impenetrable to scientific investigation. I think that's perhaps going too far in the opposite direction. So how do we naturalize qualia? Um, the way illusionists think about it is, oh, well, um, there's some model building of the world that goes on in your brain, and then inevitably you might confuse it in a way as a way the world seems to. I think that's the wrong way of talking, and I think that's what makes illusionism so unattractive. Um, there is something real going here. Uh, or that's your experience. It's your goal-directed mm -hmm. space. And uh, I think when you think about panpsychism, it seems like a very natural move to go once you've become really convinced of the hardness of the hard problem. How possibly could we solve it? And I think neutral monism has something very attractive to it, right? That you don't think that there's, there's salts everywhere in matter, but rather that you think um, that there's some sort of neutral entity of which both mind and matter are part of. And by doing this, they can interact in various ways, which would at least partially perhaps overcome the problems of dualism. No, I'm not defending panpsychism, but I think there's a reasonable take you could uh, take on it, which would make it as reasonable as possible. Um, but then I think you do get a problem which I'm writing about when I talk about biopsychists who assert that all life is consciousness, each individual cell, because then you're faced with the problem. Well, how does the consciousness of each individual cell add up to the consciousness of an entire organism, right? Um, how does the consciousness add up? And I think panpsychists have a very similar problem. How does the subjectivity of each individual atom suddenly become a subjectivity of an organism as a whole? And why are there boundaries at all? Why is there skin-mind boundary? Um, and I think that's a trouble for panpsychism, which is why I think if you can give an evolutionary gradualist explanation, then basically no other picture, even though you can offer it, will look like a better one. So my point here isn't to say, look, panpsychism can't be right. I think we should think about it more like, a, like an abstract science of the mind where we're trying to build better models of what, what goes on. And one model might be better than another. And clearly you have this in the case of panpsychism versus very physicalist views. There's different trade-offs between the views. Um, there's different problems they solve. And by solving one problem of the other, they in turn are faced with a new problem. And I think we have to take these trade-offs seriously. And I think if you can tell an evolutionary gradualist uh, story, then I think it will be faced with the least problems here and has the most plausibility, even though it's very hard to think about. But partially here, I think the problem is very little effort has been spent on developing a very gradualist view. 
Most neuroscientists have focused on something like a transformation view, where human consciousness suddenly appears on top almost. Yeah, so just to pick up on a few threads there, I definitely agree that neutral monism is particularly enticing. I was actually, when I was investigating this a few years ago in undergrad, I was writing on a particular version of Resilient Monism called Pan-Protopsychism, which isn't technically a version of panpsychism. It's the idea that, yeah, there are these intrinsic properties that constitute the physical world, which are neither conscious nor physical as we understand them. And there's one version of that view that I find particularly compelling, which is defended by the philosopher Sam Coleman, uh, called panqualitism. And he actually distinguishes subjectivity from qualia. And he says that while qualia constitute the fundamental nature of the physical world, subjectivity doesn't. But then, as you mentioned, there's this notorious combination problem for panpsychism. How do a bunch of micro-conscious experiences combine to yield the macro-conscious experiences that we're familiar with? I, <laughs> there's actually a different version of panpsychism, too, called cosmopsychism, which is the idea... So if panpsychism is just the view, right, that consciousness pervades the fundamental nature of the reality. Well, usually people take the fundamental nature of reality to be little things like atoms and quarks. But if you think that if you take more of a top-down view of fundamentality, according to which the one fundamental entity is the universe, and you combine that with panpsychism, you get cosmopsychism, the idea that the universe itself is conscious. And that kind of dovetails nicely with a bunch of Buddhist sympathies that I have and I think the issue there is it's not a combination problem, it's a decombination problem, or how do you get these human consciousnesses out of this one holistic, unified, universal consciousness? Anyway, those are just some views that I find interesting. But uh, before we get to your dissertation in particular, I just wanted to ask, so what is your... Chalmers makes a distinction between type A and type B physicalists who respond in, in terms of their response to the hard problem, where type A physicalists like Dennett, I believe, will, will claim that there's not even an epistemic gap between physical properties and conscious phenomenal properties. Whereas type B physicalists will acknowledge that there is an epistemic gap. There is a hard problem of consciousness, but there is no corresponding ontological gap in nature. Which, which of those camps do you fall into? Yeah, I'm pretty much in the... Camp. I think there's an explanatory gap here, and I think the explanatory gap is a more useful term than the hard problem because you make it an epistemic problem, something that's hard to explain but perhaps not impossible. And that's what I'm trying to do in my thesis to narrow the explanatory gap. The goal isn't to give you a full blown solution, that's not how a scientific approach to consciousness could work. We are instead developing theories that are more or less making progress on the gap and making more sense of subjectivity as a natural phenomenon. Part of that is to revise how we think about matter. If you think about matter in this almost Newtonian sense of billiard balls clashing into each other, it's very hard to imagine how consciousness could exist. That's what Leibniz talked about with his Mill Ford experiment. Um, so he said, look, if we could enlarge the brain like a mill and walk into it, you wouldn't see consciousness, uh, which isn't the best Ford experiment. But the point was he thought about it in terms of, oh, you're going to have levers in different ways and 
these are going to interact. But the way we think now about the brain is much more complex. There's much more dynamic activity going on. It's like chemical storms, electricity, and that's a bit of a different view on matter. So I think part of resolving the problem is to think um, in a more modern way about the living organization of matter, which is quite complex and precisely why vitalists thought that there would be a hard problem, an explanatory gap for life, and it couldn't be explained in purely chemistry or physicalist sense. Um, and the other way, of course, um, is to make the mind revise it in a more naturalist way, make it more um, amenable to scientific investigation. And here you shouldn't go completely like Dennett and deny that there's a problem here. I think there's real work to be done, but it can be done. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned how our understanding of the brain is, has grown completely, increasingly complex. We no longer understand it in that kind of simplified Newtonian way. It reminds me of Galen Strawson's argument for panpsychism, where he argues that physicalism might actually entail panpsychism, right? As we learn more and more about the nature of physical properties and how weird they are, maybe eventually we'll just discover via science that physical properties are conscious properties, right? So physicalism will at some point with the completed science collapse into panpsychism. Uh, I, just, I think that's just an interesting idea. But yeah, let's turn to your dissertation. So in the chapter that I read, it was centered around this notion of phenomenological complexity. So maybe we can start with that. What is this notion of phenomenological complexity that you're playing with? That's right. So I'm taking an evolutionary approach to the problem of consciousness, which I think hasn't been really done much. It's something very novel. So you have Peter Godfrey Smith working on it, then it has been doing it for a while, but he is often rather focused on human consciousness. Um, when Donald Griffin, um, the famous American zoologist and discoverer of bat echolocation as a mere undergrad at Harvard, um, tried to create this field of cognitive ethology that would study the subjective experience of animals, the cognitive side of animal minds. That was very novel. And people criticized it a lot. Um, they called it the satanic versus of animal behavior. Um, he faced a lot of backlash. Um, but it's largely thanks to him now that there's a science more or less of animal consciousness emerging. Um, and Dennett said, we couldn't do it. He said, this would be a red herring. We can't investigate animal minds. Um, very interestingly, considering how strongly a Darwinian he considers himself to be. Um, I take a different perspective that is much more in line with Donald Griffin. We were lacking experimental paradigms in the past. So it was very hard to theorize about the possible evolutionary origins of consciousness. And this might have appeared like telling just so stories. So it was plausible to focus on humans. I think that's less of a problem now with a battery of experimental paradigms being developed. My worry is that they are often focused on humans, and perhaps I'll discuss that a bit, that often we are applying these tests to animals without thinking about the evolutionary history and the ecological lifestyles 
you can see that in mirror mark tests, right? Um, some animals are simply not going to care about having a mark on their body. They're not going to investigate it. Think about a pig or a hippo. Um, it's not going to happen. That doesn't mean they don't have a self-experience, but you can see how often these experiments would be impoverished if you don't think about what consciousness does for the animals in the wild. And there you have a bit of a clash between two traditions in thinking about animal minds. One comes more from ethology, cognitive ethology, where you're more inclined to think about what the animal does in the wild. It's a more ecological approach, whereas um, comparative psychologists, comparative cognition, and much of animal sentience research nowadays, because of the problems of justifying studying animal consciousness, has very much focused on highly constrained experiments. Degrees of freedom are limited as much as possible to make your results as tight as possible. You want to have a high degree of experimental validity, but then you sacrifice, of course, external validity, ecological validity. It might not tell you much about what consciousness does in the wild for the animal. That needs an evolutionary perspective. And one thing is here, of course, to think about the function of consciousness. And often one thing here has been that people have talked about function, but what they meant rather was something like, what does consciousness do for humans now? Whereas if you think about it in an evolutionary way, it would be something like, what is the reason, what is the causal contribution for which consciousness has evolved? Um, which is a very different perspective. And then you would rather look at the history rather than just humans now in an entirely different environment, to be fair. But one thing that's often neglected in thinking about evolution is that it's not just about the function of consciousness um, or traits in general. If you think about the evolution of a trait, you also think about the diversity of the trait. Right? Traits can come in all kinds of forms and shapes. There's going to be variations and gradations, and there's going to be functional differences. And that has very much been neglected in consciousness. And I think that's part of revising this idea that consciousness is the single thing, like a light switch, and get, and it's more similar to Dennett's idea then of explaining the multiple functional capacities of consciousness, and that explains it away. I don't think it explains it away. I think it gets us closer to sort of finding the, the core of consciousness. I treat my thesis more like an, like an onion. I'm trying to find the different dimensions of consciousness, and then split them apart, peel them away one after another to find the sort of true evolutionary core. And that's what I'm doing. And I call it phenomenological complexity as a sort of alternative term for consciousness in the sense of, look, we should think of this as a phenomenon that is just very varied. And we should think about the different dimensions and gradations and variety. That has to be at heart of it. Yeah, so I want to talk deeper about those different dimensions and kind of get into them. But first, so from what you just said, I'm wondering, do you think that consciousness has a function or 
potentially a multitude of different functions, depending upon what aspect of consciousness or what dimension of consciousness that you're talking about? Or do you leave open the possibility that consciousness might just be an evolutionary byproduct or an evolutionary accident, right? To say that it has a function, as you said, is to say that it, it evolved via natural selection because it confers some kind of adaptive advantage for the organism such that it enhances its survival and fitness, right? And, but there are some traits that don't evolve because they have a function, but they evolve because they're a byproduct of some other trait that has a function. And I'm wondering, do you leave that possibility open? So that would be a kind of an epiphenomenalist view, right? The idea that consciousness isn't really doing anything. It's just kind of an emergent property that's floating above the brain. I mean, Thomas Huxley had such a view, but his idea wasn't that consciousness couldn't play a function. His motivation was rather something like, how possibly could this dualist notion of mind influence the matter? And I see this being thrown a lot, that people treat consciousness as a possible byproduct. And to me, it makes no sense whatsoever. Very complex biological traits don't just pop into existence. And consciousness is extremely fine-tuned to the environment we live in. Colors, experiences, joys. Now, you might think that they're all individually fine-tuned to different things, and consciousness has all this, these varieties of function. And I think part of this is true. And now Dennett says consciousness has no function there. Um, perhaps he's now a bit revising his views. Um, Eva Jablonka and Simona Ginsburg have defended a view where consciousness doesn't have a function, but instead a telos, by which they mean um, functions are only for the telos of an entity. So you must have a goal-directed entity and then various parts of this entity have functions, but not the organism as a whole. And they think of consciousness as a sort of transformation of the organism we move from a purely vitalist kind of entity that is concerned with self-reproduction, self-maintenance, to having conscious felt goals. And I think there's truth to this, but it doesn't mean we're no longer a living entity. And consciousness did evolve to play a role for us as a living organism, because otherwise we wouldn't exist now with consciousness. Um, so I, I have very little um, appreciation for consciousness as a mere byproduct. There might be a sense in which consciousness does do some things now for us in our modern environments for which it didn't evolve. But the right way to approach consciousness here is to think about a very general function statement. So you need to sort of idealize away from the various things. And the way I approach it is to look at the different dimensions of consciousness and then think about what the most basic kind of subjective experience is that likely evolved first. So, and then we can build a model based on the function of this ingredient for all of consciousness. And consciousness can be transformed in various ways but depending on which dimension of consciousness you think is the most central, you'll get a very different perspective on what consciousness is. And I think consciousness science has focused, and philosophy of mind in particular, has focused far too much on colors, 
You see this in thought experiments like Mary's room. You just think so hard about redness, the, the redness of red that it becomes this this weird, really strange entity by itself. And I think perception is the wrong way to go. Um, much work is focused on the sensory side. And that's partially for epistemic reasons, because vision, human vision, is just the most easily investigatable. Compare this to smell, much harder to replicate as well. Um, but I think vision is the wrong model for consciousness. There's so much organisms can do, sensing-wise, even single-cell organisms, that just doesn't seem to necessitate conscious experience. If you have blind sight, you can have patients who can avoid organisms in their way, but can't consciously experience them. So it seems like there's a lot we can do with a non-conscious sensory um, information processing. And I think basically the hard problem might be a bit of an artifact from that because how do you explain it then? If, we, if the brain can do so much information processing without necessitating mm -hmm. consciousness, why do we suddenly need it? Um, and that's, I think, where part of the problem comes from. So I argue that there's a, an evaluative dimension of consciousness and this is where we find the true function of consciousness, which is to put values on the world and compare them uh, in various okay. ways. That's, that's very, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so just one last thing I'll say on the byproduct view. I'm not really that privy to the literature and the evolution of consciousness, but I was recently reading about the Tononi's integrated information theory of consciousness, which holds that consciousness is an emergent property of certain systems that have a sufficient degree of integrated information. And I'm pretty sure that on that view of consciousness, consciousness doesn't really have a function, but it might just be a necessary byproduct, an emergent property of, of complex information processing systems. So yeah, you don't have to react to that, but I just thought that was interesting because this does seem to be a theory of consciousness, which seems to have some relatively uh, high degree of popularity among philosophers. I'm not sure how, how popular it is. I think it's especially popular in the public because it's such a simple statement. Oh, you just have it. Consciousness is just information processing, reaching a certain threshold and suddenly it pops into existence. I think that view is very problematic once you start dissecting mm -hmm. it. Um, this term phi, which is supposed to express consciousness, is never really defined. Um, it's just an assertion, basically, that you might have this one or two-dimensional way of information processing and then consciousness pops into existence. But that's based on a perhaps wrong view of consciousness as a single, as a, like a light switch, and that's something to be resisted. Um, why does consciousness suddenly pop into existence at a certain threshold? It's not explained. Um, it's just asserted. Now, it might make sense because in a view in which you think humans have consciousness and perhaps some other very complex, cognitively complex organisms have it. But if you think about it in a gradualist way, it just doesn't make much sense. And that's problematic. Another question that popped up as I was just reviewing some literature on the evolution of consciousness is the question as to whether 
if consciousness has a function, whether it's nomologically necessary to perform that function. In other words, whether that same function could be performed by some non-conscious system, but it just so happened in the history of evolution that it was a conscious system that performed that adaptive function and ended up being selected for. I'm guessing from what you said, and we can get deeper into your view now, that if you think that the fundamental function of consciousness has to do with the evaluative aspect of it, then you're going to think that consciousness is nomologically necessary because there couldn't be a non-conscious system which has that same evaluative function? Right. So in evolution, often we talk about organisms becoming more complex, and there's been lots of debate of evolution somehow being inherently directed towards more complexity. But often you actually see organisms becoming simpler. They um, have a mutation which enables them to sort of operate in a more simple way and eventually things fall apart entirely. They adopt a more simple lifestyle. And if you think about consciousness as enabling a sort of high degree of freedom in which you can respond flexibly to um, new environmental stimuli, um, depending on which state you're in instead of a very rigid way, and then you reach a new niche in the environment as a very simple organism. Don't, you don't have to think about it in a very complex way um, that insects might be the right way to think about it, given their vast range of diversity and different ecological lifestyles. You reach a new ecological niche and there's simply an abundance of food. You don't need to react flexibly anymore. Becoming fixed, just pumping out as much offspring as possible might just be easier, right? Investing into intelligence is costly. If you can dump down the system, that's a huge benefit. Now, I'm not saying that they lose consciousness entirely, um, but consciousness, of course, can be become less rich if it can become more complex. Um, and that's, I think, what sometimes happens. So to go back to your question, um, you might very well have consciousness having been evolved for this flexibility, but then on the one hand, organisms can uh, specialize for something and don't need um, this high flexibility anymore and lose consciousness. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if consciousness has multiple functions and does multiple things, you might think that one of these functions eventually becomes um, specialized for something like a module that does this function more efficiently um, like a company where um, different people specialize in a different task. So you just do this for efficiency's sake. And this is something you see in neuroeconomics. If our brain had to filter everything through something like a single agent, it would be impossible to make fast and flexible choices. So I think then it is a bit right here when he says it's a there is an illusion of us being this one agent who's in control of everything because most of, of information processing goes on unconsciously. In a way, there's, all of the neurons can be treated as individual agents that make decisions and have to filter information for what is useful to the rest of the system. So there's lots of sub-agencies. I see. But there is a central agency, more or less, in a conscious sense. Um, but it's one agency among many rather than 
um, a single one. Yeah, so that, that former possibility that you talk about where consciousness just has one function that could potentially be outmoded over time. My dissertation advisor, Susan Snyder, she works in the philosophy of artificial intelligence. And in her most recent book, she actually concocts what she calls the outmoding scenario, the possibility that some super intelligent uh, AI system might just have no need for consciousness anymore because it can perform the function of consciousness at a much more efficient rate without conscious processing, right? So, so if something like the global workspace theory of consciousness is true and the function of consciousness is to make information available to the cognitive system so that beings can flexibly engage in actions on the basis of that information, maybe a super intelligent AI could perform that function without utilizing consciousness. I, I just thought you just reminded me of that possibility. <laughs> Definitely. So my theory doesn't say anything about consciousness necessarily as it has to appear in nature. It's a sort of living theory. Uh, my, my function of consciousness claim is that consciousness evolved to enable the organism as an agent to deal with pathological complexity. That's a bit of a state of art as um, term of art that I introduce here. Um, and the idea is basically that it's important that animals have these multicellular, flexible, but also vulnerable bodies that have to engage in all this complex goal-directed behavior and constantly way of different evolutionary trade-offs between different needs. And it's very important not to die, obviously, because you have to pay off these investments comparatively to much simpler lifestyles. So consciousness has to pay for something. Um, and that's sort of my motivation here. And I think uh, your ex-supervisor was right. And we shouldn't think about AI in a very abstract sense, it must sort of be located in something like a robot and perhaps something like a soft robot that can be um, can become vulnerable to injury and then has to sort of keep track of everything that goes on. But computation might have been the wrong model for thinking about the mind. And it, if you look at the history of thinking about mind, often if a new technology um, comes to exist, people start to think about the mind in terms of this new technology. If there's new models, um, you often see this network models of the brain, very interesting. Um, now you have predictive processing, um, all new fads coming in in fashion. And um, I'm more neutral towards this. I think, look, there might be useful modeling tools, but in order to understand consciousness as a phenomenon in nature, you have to think about the hardware, um, about the way the nervous system evolved and which functions it played. And so we have to get a bit more dirty here into the wetware of how life generates it. And that might be a much more messy discipline. Mm. Okay, so yeah, let's dig deeper into this multidimensional framework of consciousness that you're operating with. So I believe that this derives from Jonathan Burke and colleagues, if that's correct. And there in the chapter, you're, you've introduced this notion of 
of phenomenological complexity, which we've talked about, and then you explain how it can be operationalized by appealing to this multidimensional framework for conscious experience. And there are five dimensions to this framework, which I thought we could drill down a bit deeper on. There's perceptual richness, evaluative richness, which which we've already discussed a bit, Um, the experience of the self and self-awareness, which we've also already discussed in the context of the mirror test that you're talking about, and then unity and and temporality. So, so perhaps we could just start with the self-awareness bit again, right? So you're talking about how there's this mirror test that's often deployed to try to to try to gauge whether certain non-human animals possess self-awareness, right? If you put a mark on them and they can recognize themselves in the mirror, and you're talking about how that is a kind of symptom of an anthropomorphic bias on our part, because there's no reason to think that they would find that compelling even if they possess self-awareness. So independent of that test, is there solid empirical evidence which suggests that non-human animals do have self-awareness? And if so, which animals are, are likely candidates for that? Right. Now, there was a Cambridge declaration in 2012 which declared with very prominent sciences, uh, scientists that vast ranges of the animal kingdom are conscious, conscious including um, vertebrates and octopuses. And I think the problem has largely been to think that there must be something like a proof of consciousness, right? You look at these neural correlates of consciousness in humans, and then you look for them in animals. That's what they also used to find uh, a proof for animal consciousness. And I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. We, we use a higher epistemic standard for animal consciousness than for anything else. Um, if you think it's evolutionary ancient, then Darwinian continuity should just force you to accept that subjective experience is likely going to be found across vast ranges of the animal tree of life, perhaps even deeper, though I'm not endorsing that. Um, And the thinking goes as follows. I think that many think about science as having this virtue of um, Morgan's canon, that basically you should never endorse some higher cognitively complex um, mechanism that's necessary tend to explain behavior. And it's like Occam's razor, basically they're endorsing, look, let's not grant these entities consciousness unless there's a lot of evidence, right? It's seen as a scientific virtue that simplicity is better. But that just violates evolutionary continuity. That's good in the absence of evolutionary thinking. But because we know that we're all related and consciousness has to come from somewhere, continuity sort of undermines that principle. And you might think, well, anthropodenial, um, the denial of human characteristics to animals is just as bad as granting them these properties when they don't have them. Um, we don't have to talk here about ethics, but if you think, oh, well, if an animal can suffer, then that's an issue for moral concern. We should treat them differently. You might even treat it like a, like a, you might apply a precautionary principle as Jonathan Birch recommends. Um, but you don't have to go that route. I am endorsing it in a sense for purely scientific reasons. And this can be done. This shouldn't be confused uh, just doing it for ethics. 
animals can be um, can experience the world in various ways. And our problem is that we don't know what that experience perhaps would be like if we go very far down the evolutionary tree of life. So looking at a human model of consciousness is something I want to overcome. Now, Birch, together with Alexandra Schnell and Nicola Clayton, they're both comparative cognition uh, scientists. And the problem there is, as I just said, that they study it with a very much in a lab focus. And another thing that happens there is in comparative psychology that they use experiments that have been developed on humans to test similar abilities in animals. And depending on the lifestyles, they might be really good at them or really bad. And then people have done new tests to prove this in better ways. For instance, dogs are much more uh, focused on, on the olfactory side rather than vision. And experiments on self-recognition have worked much better if you do this. Mm. I said the mirror mm. test already. The mirror test has become so popular because it seemed like this one proof, an experiment that either works or doesn't, a binary test, um, which is something I think we need to overcome. Different ways of thinking is, does the animal have a, a, a theory of other minds, mm -hmm. which seems highly suggestive of something like consciousness, but people have argued, and I think that's sort of right, that knowledge might be actually something simpler than belief, which is very much contrary to popular opinion in philosophy, where knowledge is seen as this entity of justified true belief, and our conceptual analysis has here revealed ourselves a deep truth about reality that might be the wrong way to go. And because many animals fail at false belief tasks, which are taken as the paradigm um, for animal consciousness, at least they have been. Now we are using different measures because the different dimensions have started to become recognized. But even chimps fail at false belief tasks. So mm. people continue to deny that they have a theory of other minds. But if you use knowledge tasks, that is, can they accurately sort of model other agents in the environment based on what they think their knowledge state is, do they know it or do they not know it, then that works pretty well. And that goes quite deep in the evolutionary tree. Um, a more minimal self-concept, which is just a bodily self-awareness, I think even that is something that is perhaps a bit rich if you think of evolution of the evolution of consciousness as being something really uh, ancient. You might have something like pains, hungers, without a sense of self, just as a sort of intrusive feeling into the goings-on of the organism. But that's one popular dimension. And four others uh, are, one is unity, which can be split into two more. Um, Jonathan Birch discusses this as unity and temporality. Unity is sort of the integration of experience at a time. Temporality is the integration of experience across time. Um, I think unity is the wrong term here because both are a form of unity, just in a different sense. So I call one um, synchronic unity and the other diachronic unity. Diachronic is across time, synchronic is yeah, at a time. 
And these experiments are really interesting. Now, most animals lack a very rich sense of um, a sort of human-like memory, but there are surprising things we learn about the long-term memory capacities of octopuses, corvids. Short-term memory is also very interesting. How do animals perceive their world? And though the problem here is rather how integrated are the experiences of animals? If you look at human consciousness, we often think about what William James said as this stream of experience like a flowing river. Right? And this might not be the right picture. We're confusing perhaps human experience as a model for how all experience must be. Experience might be less integrated in different stages. Now, one example are split brain patients, but clearly that's a pathological case and dysfunctional in many ways. Um, but if you think about it in a less scala natura way, that human consciousness must be the most complex and best consciousness in nature, and you think consciousness is adapted to the particular lifestyles of animals, you might think a less integrated consciousness might actually be better for different purposes, mm. uh, play at different mm. functions there. Uh, good examples are birds, because in birds they lack a very centralized connective uh, tissue that would link both brain hemispheres, so they're more disassociated. So perhaps birds, they're just advantaged by that, and two brains, it's the vision of labor, they're focusing on different tasks. So uh, one thing to test this are sort of visual preference tests. You can see when an animal, for instance, prefers to use one side of their, of their vision to do a task rather than another, or body health. Um, these are quite interesting to, and suggestive in humans as well, of one half of the brain being more engaged in a particular task. Do we, of course, do engage in cross-modal integration a lot? An octopus is a much more interesting example where you might ask, oh, well, does an octopus have nine different selves, perhaps ten? Um, perhaps each arm has the individual consciousness. If you think consciousness is in the service of degrees of freedom and all these arms have to sort of engage with the world in multiple ways, you it might be too complex for a centralized agent to handle all this. And each of these individual arms have so many neurons, it's not implausible to think that something like a subjective experience could go on there. And I, I think that's a plausible scenario, especially because insects have uh, fewer neurons, but we still think that likely there is something like a subjective experience going on there. Yeah. When your your discussion of octopuses, I found especially compelling because octopi consciousness just really seems to be this weird alien form of consciousness that puts pressure on all of our standard intuitions about the phenomenon. This issue of the unity of consciousness seems in some ways similar to the hard problem of consciousness because it is hard for me, conceptually speaking, to imagine what it would be like for consciousness to be disunified. Right? It seems like in terms of diachronic unity, yeah, there's something it's like to have uh, auditory experience, a visual experience, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also something it's like to have all of these experiences at the same time, right? 
and trying to imagine what it would be like for these experiences to be disjointed in some sense, I have trouble doing. But yeah, as you say, there's this phenomenon of split brain patients, and then there's all of this work that you were alluding to in the animal consciousness literature on birds, as you were saying, and on octopuses, that really uh, puts pressure on that notion. One question that I had when it comes to diachronic uh, synchron I'm confusing the unities now when it comes to unity throughout time is do are there, is there any and maybe you said this in the chapter I'm just forgetting is there any empirical evidence for the idea that certain non-human animals can engage in mental time travel that they can they they can have thoughts about the future that they can ruminate about their their past I think the literature and the evidence we've accumulated is very compelling but it is still very controversial. I think we've inherited a bit of a behaviorist bias there. It needs to be proven um, beyond any doubt. Um, why do I think that? Well, on the one hand, I have aphantasia. So I have trouble imagining things. If I close my eyes, my dreams are impoverished. And the way humans can engage with the world is a much more cognitivist way. We are symbolizing, we have semantic memory, and sometimes episodic memory is seen more narrowly as a specifically conscious experience of the past. We almost literally re-experience past events, or then if you go into the future, you model possible future events. And I just can't do that. Mm. And still, I'm fairly well equipped with dealing with the natural world and aphantasics don't seem to have too many problems some even deny it exists because it's hard to find a dysfunction i think we just haven't done enough tests so if you compare me to heather browning which who was also on your podcast she seems much better at anticipating future uh, mental states like hunger whereas i seem to be almost stuck in the in the present, when I'm not hungry, I'm like, oh, I can't imagine being hungry. Well, of oh. course I can't, because I have a fantasia. Uh, but that took me um, 20, 25 years to find out, roughly. Um, That's, did you, already, so did you always think, know that there was something, go, that there was something going on that was, that was not mm. normal compared to other experiences? Or what? Yeah, go ahead. I learned it in a conversation with Heather, basically, that um, I think she asked me to imagine something like a red apple. I don't know how it happened, but then I was like, you mean literally in, in my mind's eye? That's just a metaphor, right? What? No? So I always thought when people talk about things like this, they mean it in a metaphorical way. And now you can see why people like that would be more inclined to deny the reality of consciousness or something really rich. I think there is something to be explained here. Mm. Um, but my point is rather something like, we humans can replace this with semantic thought. I can store memories semantically just as facts, things that happened, things that will happen in the future. But how would animals do that? And here I think it's actually plausible that some animals might have a richer mental time travel than us humans, at least richer than me. 
And I think that's not something we should just um, reject because we think human consciousness is the most rich thing there would be. That's a very pre-Darwinian view and a grave mistake we should be trying to avoid. So I want to move the science of consciousness to its post-Darwinian age, in a sense. Maybe you're in a, just an enlightened Buddha who's living perpetually in the present and ever mindful. It's it's not the worst living in the present, but it's not the best either. Right. <laughs> uh, so... Let's see, what other questions do I have here? Oh, one other thread that I wanted to pick up on, just to go back to self-awareness for one second, is do self-awareness and the capacity for mind reading go hand in hand? In other words, because it seems like they could come apart. It seems like an animal could have the capacity to attribute mental states to others without necessarily being aware that it itself has mental states. Or maybe not. I don't know. I was just curious. Yeah, I think I think the research suggests that what animals do, in fact, is a sort of experiential modeling. After they have experienced certain things, they model other animals as also possibly having had these experiences. They learn from their own experience and transfer this to others. So that's highly suggestive of, of a sort of you take your perspective first, then you transfer it to others. And now you might think, well, that's not inherently different from looking at the experience of another animal and then transferring it to yourself. And I think it's plausible for many animals that are engaged in complex learning behavior from their conspecifics. Monkeys, dolphins, many animals are engaged in complex learning activities um, much of their behavior is simply inherited by learning from their parents. And I think it's plausible that there's something like this going on. They closely watch what's happening. And when you think about skills you learned, um, I don't know what you can do, perhaps juggling, I can't do it. Perhaps that's because of Avantasia. I'm a good whistler. I suspect, I suspect it is. <laughs> um, it's perhaps much harder to learn a skill by just memorizing a list of facts. Clearly, that doesn't really work well. And people who try, the advice often is stop thinking, just experience the thing you're doing and listen to your body. So I think animals, it might be going in both directions here. Mm. Okay, so we've talked about self-awareness. We've talked about unity, temporality talked a little bit about perceptual richness when it comes to the evaluative aspect of experience this dimension the multi-dimensional framework so you mentioned that you think that this dimension is particularly pertinent when you're talking about the function of consciousness also in the paper you talk about how empirical evidence would suggest that non-human animals might possess certain evaluative experiences. You mentioned different cognitive bias experiments that have taken place uh, for non-human animals. Could you just say a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, if you think about animal life, um, what behavioral ecologists do is to model 
the trade-offs they're constantly engaged in. Um, so it's called foraging theory often, where basically you model the different fitness property of different kinds of nutrients, the potential risks of being faced by a predator. And that is a highly evaluative kind of engagement with the world. You have to calculate these trade-offs somehow. Otherwise, you're not going to maximize your fitness. And how do animals do that? Um, the thinking goes that there's some kind of effective decision-making. And this can be tested with cognitive, cognitive biases. So if an animal had a bad experience recently, then often what you get is that the animal acts in a way that suggests its thinking. The world is less favorable to itself. Right? It might not even go for some food item because it might think it gets punished again. And mm. animals that have good experience are much more optimistic. And I think we see this in humans as well. Humans that had some good experiences um, treat the world like it belongs to them and act in a way as if everything is going to work. And often it does. It's almost self-reinforcing. But if things go wrong, you expect everything to go wrong, you approach the world in a more pessimistic way. Mm -hmm. Now, in a human environment, this often goes wrong. In an animal environment, however, where these capacities likely evolved, they seem very reasonable, right? If things go wrong, you should be more careful. Imagine getting injured by a predator, barely escaping with your life. You should be more careful, probably. It's a learning experience. But if your environment contains very few predators, then it would be rational to become more optimistic, um, to go for more food, try to mate more often, have more offspring. This is adaptive behavior. And to think that animals would be better off by just having a fixed response to everything is very likely to be exploitable. So effective decision-making has this dual role of evaluating trade-offs but at the same time learning about new um, changes in the environment. Much of this research actually didn't happen in animal consciousness or consciousness science because this is often focused on the visual side. And it has much more focused on sort of the organism representing external objects or internal phenomena. But if you think about it in terms of evaluation, it becomes... Um, much more reasonable to think that there are some sensings that are accompanied by an evaluative feel and others aren't where it's not necessary. Um, and animal welfare scientists have often engaged in this much more because they've treated animals as conscious in order to find out about what would increase their well-being or lower it. Um, some uh, researchers like Marion Dawkins, who initially argued that we should naturalize animal consciousness, now defends a more um, conservative view. She more like economists did when they replaced hedonistic well-being maximization with just preference satisfaction as something that can be more readily measured. It's not necessarily involving solving the problem of consciousness. So you can do preference tests on animals as well. Those are very suggestive that some evaluation is going on. Now, preference behavior, just a preference of one item over another, 
doesn't necessarily entail consciousness, but it entails that some evaluation has to go on. Mm. And at least in animals, evaluation is very likely to involve conscious experiences. So where are you at right now in your research? And, and where is it going from here? Like, what are you working on right now that you're excited about? Right. So right now, I've basically um, tried to... The phenomenological complexity concept was something like a diverse onion with different sprawlings. Uh, some philosophers of mine that prefer desert ontology. I think a rich forest of consciousness is perhaps better. But in order to find the true place of mind and nature, to understand what it evolved to do, we have to slash away almost this complexity that have come later. So we have to think about which of these dimensions are more primary. And I think the experience of time, that seems to be much more of a higher order feature. I could give you a much longer explanation here, but I think this is something intuitively that that you can buy even just based on intuitions. The unity of experience is much harder to disentangle, but here I simply suggest to think of it in terms of, look, our experience isn't perfectly integrated either. Um, We're having trouble sometimes comparing different stimuli with each other. We don't know what to do if different things happen. Integration is a matter of degree. Um, we're not integrating colors and and sounds into the same sort of ontology. Differences are necessary. They sort of appear almost. Then it wants to resist the picture of a Cartesian theater, but something like this happens in a global workspace, I think. But you can shed this away. That doesn't necessarily have to be integration, as you can see perhaps in birds, octopuses and split brain patients. A self, a minimal sense of self is much harder to shed away. I mean, I I guess with rich self-awareness, almost everyone is on board. Look, maybe this isn't present even in chimpanzees, but yes, they do feel something like pain. They see colors. Um, Dogs uh, smell things. But what about this minimal sense of bodily self? I do think this is quite widespread across the animal kingdom, if you think about familiar animals like dogs. But if you think about the very origins of consciousness, then I think it's misleading. And I think the term subjective experience perhaps is here unhelpful as well. On the one hand, it's more helpful to think of minimal kinds, but perhaps a unit united self isn't as central for consciousness. If you just have a feel of pain, is is that already an experience of a self? I doubt it. Um, You could have color flashes without necessarily integrating that into some sort of higher order self. So I think you can shed this away. And basically then two dimensions are left, the sensory side and the evaluative side. And I'm here not giving an argument that we can just shed the sensory side away. That's too simplistic. They, in some sense, are always present. In goal-directed behavior, there's always almost sensing and evaluation involved. And that's, as uh, Bill Godfrey Smith nicely puts it, that's sort of um, very nice, captured in expected utility 
models of behavior. There's always something like this going on, and then there's an open question of what are subjective experiences involved. But I think what you see on the sensory side is that the heart problem hasn't been resolved, and almost all work has focused on developing a theory of consciousness based on human vision. But if this is the wrong underlying model, then perhaps this isn't how we should model everything else, a sort of um, sensory representation. Perhaps that's not what's going on with a felt feeling of being an agent in the world or having a time integration, right. dreaming. These things are very hard to capture in human vision. So just because it's our most primary experience, perhaps that's not the way we should model the world. Now, there's very interesting work in experimental philosophy which supports my view that valence an effect, a positive or negative appearance, my emotions, that those states, moods, are the most basic ingredients of consciousness. Hmm. So people have um, been put into these psychological experiments and asked whether they think a human or a robot has a conscious experience. And interestingly, they often said something like, um, the robot can smell chemical X657, but he cannot smell roses. What's the difference? I think it's because when humans think about the smell of roses, there is an evaluation imbued in that. Mm. That would explain the difference. Pure sensory explanation wouldn't explain it. Now, David Chalmers has, has said these experiments can be perfectly explained by my theory. They just haven't thought hard enough about qualia and the heart problem. But it's evidence to support the view that perhaps what philosophers have seen as the most basic and widely accepted folk view of consciousness might be mistaken. Tastes, smells, um, pains, pleasures, these seem primarily to be much more of an evaluative kind. It's a feeling of how something is going for you rather than representing something in the world. That doesn't mean they're not representing something, but that's a layer that came perhaps later, right? When organisms became more enriched in their ability to discriminate different stimuli and make these distinctions in the world. Now, in our experience, these things are often tied very closely together. But I think that we will basically find the origins of consciousness on the evaluative side. Wow. Yeah, I haven't heard that view before. I, I think this question as to which of these dimensions is the most fundamental or the most primary is definitely a really important question. And <laughs> I have to say, the idea that sensory consciousness isn't the most primary and that it could potentially be stripped away i actually am sympathetic to that based upon recent literature that i've been reading which is called cognitive phenomenology by philosophers of mind the idea that there's a distinctive consciousness of thought which may even be irreducible to sensory phenomenology right so obviously there's there's thinking that involves there's thinking that involves inner speech and verb and uh 
Yeah, so verbal imagery and visual imagery in your head, but that's still a kind of sensory phenomenology. These philosophers that are talking about cognitive phenomenology are often talking about, yeah, something, some what it's likeness of thought, which doesn't involve any of that sensory processing whatsoever, or sensory phenomenology. It doesn't involve inner speech, doesn't involve visual imagery. And if that's true, if that does exist, that would potentially seem to suggest that sensory processing isn't necessary for consciousness. Buddhists will also talk about the possibility of pure consciousness, which is supposed to be a which is supposed to be a consciousness that's completely devoid of of any uh, sensory experience as well. So I, I find that view compelling. Another thought that I had while you were talking uh, was the relationship between the experience of self and the experience of unity. It's, it's, it seems to me that these, these two experiences are interrelated, that selfhood may in some sense be bootstrapped onto unity, or the fact that, the fact that consciousness feels unified might in some ways ex- give rise to our feeling of a self or something like that. And I was also thinking about the the global workspace theory of consciousness and wondering whether what the primary dimension of consciousness would be according to that theory. And it seems to me, based on my understanding of it, is that it would be something like unity, right? Because if the function of consciousness is to make information globally available, then it seems like that unity would be constitute the core of the phenomenon. But maybe I'm misreading the theory. Anyways, no, I agree. Um, I think the global workspace is uh, takes unity very seriously, but that's partially because it takes human conscious experience as a model in which all of the five dimensions come in a very rich way already. And um, but if you think about the evolution of a global workspace, I think they would be uh, happy to admit that something like a global workspace gradually emerges and experience becomes more and more integrated. But then you still get something like these sensory states, which are in some sense primary and are then more or less integrated. So I could imagine something like this uh, to be the core, but of course that doesn't have to be the case. And you could just accept that it's based on two dimensions. There's no need to limit us. And what I say in my chapter is that I take this call for the five dimensions in a purely heuristic way. Thinking about consciousness has often been limited to one or two dimensions, perhaps some levels. And my support for Jonathan Birch's dimensions of consciousness view is in a sense purely pragmatic in the sense that I want to overcome the old view. There's no sense in now discussing what the right dimensions are and infighting about it. This is something future empirical research has to determine. And I discuss lots of the experimental paradigms as actually testing often multiple dimensions at the same time, which of course makes sense um, if the animals we test already have all five dimensions present. So just because we can draw a conceptual distinction, I think it's very important not to confuse that with a very important distinction in nature. It could just be the case that these all come together and can be divided. And I used to think that a sensory side and a evaluative side couldn't possibly be divided. It must be 
evaluative and part of me thinks still thinks that but i now think you could have a pure evaluation as a more primary kind that doesn't necessarily involve a representation mm. um now if you go very deflationary about the uh, representations they're cheap to get then uh, things are going to be represented but how usefully are they going to be represented to the organism how good is the fit This is then all something that's going to be fine-tuned over evolutionary time. So I think across the tree of life, it would be very hard to draw um, comparisons between animals and how conscious they are, even if we fine-grain it into five different dimensions. I would expect different capacities to evolve alongside each other in different nesting relationships, almost like a banyan tree, very complex and then there's no one true way in which it emerged i think the i think balance effective states evaluation is different because i think consciousness basically appeared as something like a one origin like the origin of life i don't think there were multiple origins i think there were some losses of consciousness so we have different lineages in different levels of richness um With complex in different ways, probably it's multiply realizable, for instance, to realize a sense of self. Um, and I think the important part is there to basically think about it in terms of a very useful tool to think about the diversity of mind. And that's why I talk about phenomenological complexity. We see that even in our own species, there's a vast range of diversity. And I suspect that Quite a lot of debates in philosophy of mind and even in other philosophy areas is just due to people with a sort of different brain architecture. Utilitarians like me seem to be wired differently from more deontologically inclined people. And well, that's just that's just it, perhaps. Right? No arguments are going to convince you of something that's more fitting to your brain i don't i don't think it's necessarily that way people clearly can become convinced of one view or another but they are striking they are striking intuition pulls and it would be a mistake to think that philosophers aren't influenced by the strength of their own intuitions mm -hmm. but if this is something that can be influenced by the way your mind is and minds are very diverse it would make a lot of sense that we have this diversity in a lot of philosophical um, questions that is not going to be reduced by argument. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a nice call to have more diversity in philosophy. Um, you might have more neurodivergent people, um, people with autism, people with ADHD, um, perhaps... Uh, Uh, more blind people, people with disabilities who have a different experience of the world, um, more women, more people of color. I think this is really important to expand the diversity of mind as much as the diversity of people itself. Because clearly the way our minds are shaped isn't just from birth, but also from the experiences we have in the world. And then they change how we experience the world depending on what happens. Yeah, I totally agree with all that, uh, the need for more diversity in philosophy. And I will say, when it comes to the realm of ethics, I think our brains are wired roughly similarly, because I'm also in that utilitarian camp. 
But when it comes to the metaphysics of consciousness, maybe our brains are wired a bit differently because I do find the hard problem compelling. But yeah, that's definitely true. It seems like there are so many debates in philosophy which ultimately just turn on a difference in fundamental intuitions. And when you're talking about the hard problem of consciousness, that absolutely seems to be the case in my experience. Some people just don't get why the hard problem is something that's worth taking seriously, and others do. And the the last thing I'll say is, when I reflect upon the, the power that intuitions play in determining one's philosophical views, sometimes it almost leads me to a kind of skepticism, because isn't it the case that our intuitions evolved? They themselves evolved to confer some adaptive advantage and not necessarily to track truth in the world, right? So if we're relying on these intuitions as reliable truth trackers, that might get us in trouble. Do you, does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think, I think you're completely right. I mean, Dennett made a point at a NYU Animal Consciousness Conference when he had a little that. dispute with Thomas Nagel. Oh, really? Nice. So you probably, probably saw the exchange between um, Dennett and Nagel where Dennett said, look, philosophy is the only area where we're trying to understand the world and where intuitions are the non plus ultra. In the sciences, you look for theories that clash with our intuitions because once we confirm them, that's just going to be a huge scientific breakthrough. Part of the problem, I think, is that in philosophy, we don't exactly have the same kind of way of conforming theories, which I think is a mistake. We should get more empirical data into philosophy. And this old view that philosophy should be immune from the sciences, discontinuous, um, I think has held philosophy um, quite back. I guess we have refined our conceptual toolkit. There was a bit of a trade-off going on here. Yes. Yeah. Well, I love the work that you're doing. The idea that evaluative consciousness might be the most kind of primary form of consciousness, I think, is really interesting, and I'm excited to, to learn more as you progress. So I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and having this conversation with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure.